0: Chapter 1 Part 1 of The Rainbow This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence Chapter 1 How Tom Brangwen Married a Polish Lady Part 1 the Brangwins had lived for generations on the marsh farm in the meadows where the air wash twisted sluggishly through alder trees, separating Derbyshire from Nottinghamshire. Two miles away, a church tower stood on a hill; the houses of the little country town climbing assiduously up to it. Whenever one of the Brangwins in the fields lifted his head from his work, he saw the church tower at Ilkeston in the empty sky, so that, as he turned again to the horizontal land, he was aware of something standing above him and beyond him in the distance. There was a look in the eyes of the Brangwins, as if they were expecting something unknown, about which they were eager. They had that air of readiness for what would come to them, a kind of surety, an expectancy, the look of an inheritor. They were fresh, blond, slow speaking people, revealing themselves plainly but slowly, so that one could watch the change in their eyes from laughter to anger, blue lit up laughter to a hard, blue staring anger, through all the irresolute stages of the sky when the weather is changing. Living on rich land, on their own land, near to a growing town, they had forgotten what it was to be in straitened circumstances. They had never become rich, because there were always children, and the patrimony was divided every time, but always at the marsh there was ample. So the Brangwins came and went without fear of necessity, working hard because of the life that was in them, not for want of the money. Neither were they thriftless. They were aware of the last half-penny, and instinct made them not waste the peeling of their apple, for it would help to feed the cattle. But heaven and earth was teeming around them, and how should this cease? They felt the rush of the sap in spring. They knew the wave which cannot halt, but every year throws forward the seed to be getting, and falling back leaves the young born on the earth. They knew the intercourse between heaven and earth, sunshine drawn into the breast and bowels, the rain sucked up in the daytime— nakedness that comes under the wind in autumn showing the birds nests no longer worth hiding their life and interrelations were such feeling the pulse and body of the soil that opened to their furrow for the grain and became smooth and supple after their ploughing and clung to their feet with a weight that pulled like desire lying hard and unresponsive when the crops were to be shorn away The young corn waved and was silken, and the luster slid along the limbs of the men who saw it. They took the udder of the cows, the cows yielded milk, and pulse against the hands of the men. The pulse of the blood of the teats of the cows beat into the pulse of the hands of the men. They mounted their horses and held life between the grip of their knees. They harnessed their horses at the wagon, and with hand on the bridle rings drew the heaving of the horses after their will in autumn the partridges whirred up birds in flocks blew like spray across the fallow rooks appeared on the grey watery heavens and flew cawing into the winter then the men sat by the fire in the house where the women moved about with surety and the limbs and the body of the men were impregnated with the day cattle and earth and vegetation and the sky THE MEN SAT BY THE FIRE, AND THEIR BRAINS WERE INERT, AS THEIR BLOOD FLOWED HEAVY WITH THE ACCUMULATION FROM THE LIVING DAY. THE WOMEN WERE DIFFERENT. ON THEM, TOO, WAS THE drowse OF BLOOD INTIMACY, CALVES SUCKING, AND HENS RUNNING TOGETHER IN DROVES, AND YOUNG GEESE PALPITATING IN THE HAND WHILE THE FOOD WAS PUSHED DOWN THEIR THROTTLE. BUT THE WOMEN LOOKED OUT FROM THE HEATED, BLIND INTERCOURSE OF FARM LIFE TO THE SPOKEN WORLD BEYOND. They were aware of the lips and the mind of the world speaking and giving utterance. They heard the sound in the distance, and they strained to listen. It was enough for the men that the earth heaved and opened its furrow to them, that the wind blew to dry the wet wheat and set the young ears of corn wheeling freshly round about. It was enough that they helped the cow in labor, or ferreted the rats from under the barn, Or broke the back of a rabbit with a sharp knock of the hand. So much warmth and generating and pain and death did they know in their blood, earth and sky and beast and green plants, so much exchange and interchange they had with these, that they lived full and surcharged, their senses full fed, their faces always turned to the heat of the blood, staring into the sun, dazed with looking towards the source of generation. "'unable to turn round. "'But the woman wanted another form of life than this, "'something that was not blood intimacy. "'Her house faced out from the farm buildings and fields, "'looked out to the road and the village "'with church and hall and the world beyond. "'She stood to see the far-off world "'of cities and governments, "'and the active scope of man, "'the magic land to her, "'where secrets were made known and desires fulfilled.' She faced outwards to where men moved dominant and creative, having turned their back on the pulsing heat of creation, and with this behind them were set out to discover what was beyond, to enlarge their own scope and range and freedom, whereas the Brangwen men faced inwards to the teeming life of creation, which poured unresolved into their veins. Looking out, as she must, from the front of her house towards the activity of man in the world at large. Whilst her husband looked out to the back at sky and harvest and beast and land, she strained her eyes to see what man had done in fighting outwards to knowledge. She strained to hear how he uttered himself in his conquest. Her deepest desire hung on the battle that she heard, far off, being waged on the edge of the unknown. She also wanted to know, and to be of the fighting host. "'At home, even so near as Cosset Hay, "'was the vicar who spoke the other magic language "'and had the other finer bearing, "'both of which she could perceive but could never attain to. "'The vicar moved in worlds beyond where her own menfolk existed. "'Did she not know her own menfolk? "'Fresh, slow, full-built men, masterful enough, "'but easy, native to the earth, "'lacking outwardness and range of motion.' Whereas the vicar, dark and dry and small beside her husband, had yet a quickness and a range of being that made Brangwen, in his large geniality, seem dull and local. She knew her husband, but in the vicar's nature was that which passed beyond her knowledge. As Brangwen had power over the cattle, so the vicar had power over her husband. What was it in the vicar that raised him above the common men, "'as man is raised above the beast. "'She craved to know, "'she craved to achieve this higher being, "'if not in herself, then in her children. "'That which makes a man strong, "'even if he be little and frail in body, "'just as any man is little and frail beside a bull, "'and yet stronger than the bull, "'what was it? "'It was not money, nor power, nor position. "'What power had the vicar over Tom Brangwen?' none. Yet stripped them and set them on a desert island, and the vicar was the master. His soul was master of the other man's. And why? Why? She decided it was a question of knowledge. The curate was poor enough, and not very efficacious as a man, either. Yet he took rank with those others, the superior." She watched his children being born. She saw them running as tiny things beside their mother, and already they were separate from her own children, distinct. Why were her own children marked below the others? Why should the curate's children inevitably take precedence over her children? Why should dominance be given them from the start? It was not money, nor even class. It was education and experience, she decided. It was this— THIS EDUCATION, THIS HIGHER FORM OF BEING, THAT THE MOTHER WISHED TO GIVE TO HER CHILDREN, SO THAT THEY, TOO, COULD LIVE THE SUPREME LIFE ON EARTH. FOR HER CHILDREN, AT LEAST THE CHILDREN OF HER HEART, HAD THE COMPLETE NATURE THAT SHOULD TAKE PLACE IN EQUALITY WITH THE LIVING, VITAL PEOPLE IN THE LAND, NOT BE LEFT BEHIND, OBSCURE AMONG THE LABORERS. WHY MUST THEY REMAIN OBSCURED AND STIFLED ALL THEIR LIVES? WHY SHOULD THEY SUFFER FROM LACK OF FREEDOM TO MOVE? how should they learn the entry into the finer more vivid circle of life her imagination was fired by the squire's lady at shelley hall who came to church at Cosset hay with her little children girls in tidy capes of beaver fur and smart little hats herself like a winter rose so fair and delicate so fair so fine in mould so luminous what was it that mrs Hardy felt which she, mrs Brangwen, did not feel? How was mrs Hardy's nature different from that of the common women of Cossethay? In what was it beyond them? All the women of Cossethay talked eagerly about mrs Hardy, of her husband, her children, her guests, her dress, of her servants and her housekeeping. The lady of the hall was the living dream of their lives. "'Her life was the epic that inspired their lives. "'In her they lived imaginatively, "'and in gossiping of her husband who drank, "'of her scandalous brother, "'of Lord William Bentley her friend, "'member of Parliament for the division, "'they had their own odyssey enacting itself. "'Penelope and Ulysses before them, "'and Circe and the swine and the endless web. "'So the women of the village were fortunate.' They saw themselves in the lady of the manor. Each of them lived her own fulfillment of the life of Mrs. Hardy. And the Brangwen wife of the marsh aspired beyond herself, towards the further life of the finer woman, towards the extended being she revealed, as a traveler, in his self-contained manner reveals far-off countries present in himself. But why should a knowledge of far-off countries make a man's life a different thing, finer, bigger, and why is a man more than the beast and the cattle that serve him? It is the same thing. The male part of the poem was filled in by such men as the vicar and Lord William, lean, eager men with strange movements, men who had command of the further fields, whose lives ranged over a great extent. Ah, it was something very desirable to know— "'this touch of the wonderful men "'who had the power of thought and comprehension. "'The women of the village might be much fonder of Tom Brangwen "'and more at their ease with him. "'Yet, if their lives had been robbed of the vicar and of Lord William, "'the leading shoot would have been cut away from them. "'They would have been heavy and uninspired and inclined to hate. "'So long as the wonder of the beyond was before them, "'they could get along, whatever their lot.' and Mrs. Hardy and the vicar and Lord William, these moved in the wonder of the beyond, and were visible to the eyes of Cossethay in their motion. About 1840 a canal was constructed across the meadows of the Marsh Farm, connecting the newly opened collieries of the Airwash Valley. A high embankment travelled along the fields to carry the canal, which passed close to the homestead, and reaching the road went over in a heavy bridge so the marsh was shut off from ilkeston and enclosed in the small valley bed which ended in a bushy hill in the village spire of Cossethay. the brangwins received a fair sum of money from this trespass across their land then a short time afterwards a colliery was sunk on the other side of the canal and in a while the midland railway came down the valley at the foot of the ilkeston hill and the invasion was complete. The town grew rapidly. The Brangwins were kept busy producing supplies. They became richer. They were almost tradesmen. Still, the marsh remained remote and original on the old, quiet side of the canal embankment. In the sunny valley where slow water wound along in company of stiff alders, and the road went under ash trees past the Brangwins' garden gate but looking from the garden gate down the road to the right there through the dark archway of the canal square aqueduct was a colliery spinning away in the near distance and further red crude houses plastered on the valley in masses and beyond all the dim smoking hill of the town the homestead was just on the safe side of civilization outside the gate the house stood bare from the road approached by a straight garden path, along which at spring the daffodils were thick in green and yellow. At the sides of the house were bushes of lilac and gulder rose and privet, entirely hiding the farm buildings behind. At the back a confusion of sheds spread into the home, close from out of two or three indistinct yards. The duck-pond lay beyond the furthest wall, littering its white feathers on the padded earthen banks, blowing its stray soiled feathers into the grass and the gorse bushes below the canal embankment, which rose like a high rampart near at hand, so that occasionally a man's figure passed in silhouette, or a man and a towing horse traversed the sky. At first the brangwens were astonished by all this commotion around them. The building of a canal across their land made them strangers in their own place, this raw bank of earth shutting them off disconcerted them as they worked in the fields from beyond the now familiar embankment came the rhythmic run of the winding engines startling at first but afterwards a narcotic to the brain then the shrill whistle of the trains re-echoed through the heart with fearsome pleasure announcing the far-off come near and imminent as they drove home from town The farmers of the land met the blackened colliers trooping from the pit-mouth. As they gathered the harvest, the west wind brought a faint sulfurous smell of pit-refuse burning. As they pulled the turnips in November, the sharp clink-clink-clink-clink-clink of empty trucks shunting on the line vibrated in their hearts with the fact of other activity going on beyond them. The Alfred Brangwen of this period had married a woman from Hienor, a daughter of the Black Horse. She was a slim, pretty, dark woman, quaint in her speech, whimsical, so that the sharp things she said did not hurt. She was oddly a thing to herself, rather querulous in her manner, but intrinsically separate and indifferent, so that her long lamentable complaints— when she raised her voice against her husband in particular, and against everybody else after him, only made those who heard her wonder and feel affectionately towards her, even while they were irritated and impatient with her. She railed long and loud about her husband, but always with a balanced, easy-flying voice and a quaint manner of speech that warmed his belly with pride and male triumph while he scowled with mortification at the things she said consequently brangwen himself had a humorous puckering at the eyes a sort of fat laugh very quiet and full and he was spoilt like a lord of creation he calmly did as he liked laughed at their railing excused himself in a teasing tone that she loved followed his natural inclinations and sometimes pricked too near the quick frightened and broke her by a deep tense fury which seemed to fix on him and hold him for days and which she would give anything to placate in him they were two very separate beings vitally connected knowing nothing of each other yet living in their separate ways from one root there were four sons and two daughters the eldest boy ran away early to sea and did not come back after this the mother was more the node and centre of attraction in the home the second boy alfred whom the mother admired most, was the most reserved. He was sent to school in Ilkeston, and made some progress. But in spite of his dogged, yearning effort, he could not get beyond the rudiments of anything save of drawing. At this, in which he had some power, he worked as if it were his hope. After much grumbling and savage rebellion against everything, After much trying and shifting about, when his father was incensed against him and his mother almost despairing, he became a draftsman in a lace factory in Nottingham. He remained heavy and somewhat uncouth, speaking with broad Derbyshire accent, adhering with all his tenacity to his work and to his town position, making good designs and becoming fairly well off but at drawing his hand swung naturally in big bold lines, rather lax, so that it was cruel for him to pedgill away at the lace designing, working from the tiny squares of his paper, counting and plotting and niggling. He did it stubbornly, with anguish, crushing the bowels within him, adhering to his chosen lot whatever it should cost, and he came back into life set and rigid, a rare-spoken, almost surly man." He married the daughter of a chemist, who affected some social superiority, and he became something of a snob in his dogged fashion, with a passion for outward refinement in the household, mad when anything clumsy or gross occurred. Later, when his three children were growing up, and he seemed a staid, almost middle-aged man, he turned after strange women, and became a silent, inscrutable follower of forbidden pleasure." "'neglecting his indignant bourgeois wife without a qualm. "'Frank, the third son, refused from the first "'to have anything to do with learning. "'From the first he hung round the slaughter-house, "'which stood away in the third yard at the back of the farm. "'The Brangwins had always killed their own meat "'and supplied the neighbourhood. "'Out of this grew a regular butcher's business "'in connection with the farm.' As a child, Frank had been drawn by the trickle of dark blood that ran across the pavement from the slaughter-house to the crew-yard, by the sight of the man carrying across to the meat-shed a huge side of beef with the kidneys showing, embedded in their heavy laps of fat. He was a handsome lad, with soft brown hair and regular features, something like a later Roman youth. He was more easily excitable, more readily carried away than the rest, weaker in character. At eighteen he married a little factory girl, a pale, plump, quiet thing with sly eyes and a wheedling voice, who insinuated herself into him and bore him a child every year and made a fool of him. When he had taken over the butchery business, already a growing callousness to it and a sort of contempt made him neglectful of it. He drank, and was often to be found in his public house, blathering away as if he knew everything, when in reality he was a noisy fool. Of the daughters, Alice the elder married a collier, and lived for a time stormily in Ilkeston, before moving away to Yorkshire with her numerous young family. Effie the younger remained at home. The last child, Tom, was considerably younger than his brother's, so had belonged rather to the company of his sisters. He was his mother's favourite. She roused herself to determination, and sent him forcibly away to a grammar school in Derby when he was twelve years old. He did not want to go, and his father would have given way. But Mrs. Brangwen had set her heart on it. Her slender, pretty, tightly-covered body with full skirts was now the centre of resolution in the house, and when she had once set upon anything which was often the family failed before her so tom went to school an unwilling failure from the first he believed his mother was right in decreeing school for him but he knew she was only right because she would not acknowledge his constitution he knew with a child's deep instinctive foreknowledge of what is going to happen to him that he would cut a sorry figure at school But he took the infliction as inevitable, as if he were guilty of his own nature, as if his being were wrong, and his mother's conception right. If he could have been what he liked, he would have been that which his mother fondly but deludedly hoped he was. He would have been clever, and capable of becoming a gentleman. It was her aspiration for him, therefore he knew it as the true aspiration for any boy. But you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, as he told his mother very early, with regard to himself, much to her mortification and chagrin. When he got to school he made a violent struggle against his physical inability to study. He sat gripped, making himself pale and ghastly in his effort to concentrate on the book, to take in what he had to learn. But it was no good. If he beat down his first repulsion and got like a suicide to the stuff, he went very little further. He could not learn deliberately. His mind simply did not work. In feeling he was developed, sensitive to the atmosphere around him, brutal perhaps, but at the same time delicate, very delicate. So he had a low opinion of himself. He knew his own limitation. He knew that his brain was a slow, hopeless, good-for-nothing, so he was humble but at the same time his feelings were more discriminating than those of most of the boys and he was confused he was more sensuously developed more refined in instinct than they for their mechanical stupidity he hated them and suffered cruel contempt for them but when it came to mental things then he was at a disadvantage he was at their mercy he was a fool He had not the power to controvert even the most stupid argument, so that he was forced to admit things he did not in the least believe. And having admitted them, he did not know whether he believed them or not. He rather thought he did. But he loved anyone who could convey enlightenment to him through feeling. He sat betrayed with emotion when the teacher of literature read, in a moving fashion, Tennyson's Ulysses, or Shelley's Ode to the West Wind. His lips parted, his eyes filled with a strained, almost suffering light, and the teacher read on, fired by his power over the boy. Tom Brangwen was moved by this experience beyond all calculation. He almost dreaded it. It was so deep. But when, almost secretly and shamefully, he came to take the book himself and began the words, "O wild west wind,' "'Thou breath of autumn's being!' "'The very fact of the print caused a prickly sensation of repulsion to go over his skin. "'The blood came to his face, his heart filled with the bursting passion of rage and incompetence. "'He threw the book down and walked over it and went out to the cricket-field. "'And he hated books as if they were his enemies. "'He hated them worse than ever he hated any person.' HE COULD NOT VOLUNTARILY CONTROL HIS ATTENTION. HIS MIND HAD NO FIXED HABITS TO GO BY. HE HAD NOTHING TO GET HOLD OF, NOWHERE TO START FROM. FOR HIM THERE WAS NOTHING palpable, NOTHING KNOWN IN HIMSELF THAT HE COULD APPLY TO LEARNING. HE DID NOT KNOW HOW TO BEGIN. THEREFORE HE WAS HELPLESS WHEN IT CAME TO DELIBERATE UNDERSTANDING OR DELIBERATE LEARNING. HE HAD AN INSTINCT FOR MATHEMATICS, BUT IF THIS FAILED HIM HE WAS HELPLESS AS AN IDIOT so that he felt that the ground was never sure under his feet. He was nowhere. His final downfall was his complete inability to attend to a question put without suggestion. If he had to write a formal composition on the army, he did at last learn to repeat the few facts he knew. You can join the army at eighteen. You have to be over five foot eight but he had all the time a living conviction that this was a dodge and that his commonplaces were beneath contempt. Then he reddened furiously, felt his bowels sink with shame, scratched out what he had written, made an agonized effort to think of something in the real composition style, failed, became sullen with rage and humiliation, put the pen down, and would have been torn to pieces rather than attempt to write another word. He soon got used to the grammar school, and the grammar school got used to him, setting him down as a hopeless duffer at learning, but respecting him for a generous, honest nature. Only one narrow, domineering fellow, the Latin master, bullied him, and made the blue eyes mad with shame and rage. There was a horrid scene when the boy laid open the master's head with a slate, and then things went on as before. The teacher got little sympathy. But Brangwen winced and could not bear to think of the deed, not even long after, when he was a grown man. He was glad to leave school. It had not been unpleasant. He had enjoyed the companionship of the other youths, or had thought he enjoyed it. The time had passed very quickly in endless activity. But he knew all the time that he was in an ignominious position in this place of learning, He was aware of failure all the while, of incapacity. But he was too healthy and sanguine to be wretched. He was too much alive. Yet his soul was wretched almost to hopelessness. He had loved one warm, clever boy who was frail in body, a consumptive type. The two had had an almost classic friendship, David and Jonathan, wherein Brangwen was a Jonathan, the server but he had never felt equal with his friend because the other's mind outpaced his and left him ashamed, far in the rear. So the two boys went at once apart on leaving school, but Brangwen always remembered his friend that had been, kept him as a sort of light, a fine experience to remember. Tom Brangwen was glad to get back to the farm where he was in his own again. "'I have got a turnip on my shoulders. Let me stick to the fallow.' he said to his exasperated mother he had too low an opinion of himself but he went about at his work on the farm gladly enough glad of the active labor and the smell of the land again having youth and vigor and humor and a comic wit having the will and the power to forget his own shortcomings finding himself violent with occasional rages but usually on good terms with everybody and everything when he was seventeen his father fell from a stack and broke his neck then the mother and son and daughter lived on at the farm interrupted by occasional loud-mouthed lamenting jealous-spirited visitations from the butcher frank who had a grievance against the world which he felt was always giving him less than his dues frank was particularly against the young tom whom he called a marty baby and tom returned the hatred violently his face growing red and his blue eyes staring. Effie sided with Tom against Frank. But when Alfred came from Nottingham, heavy-jowled and lowering, speaking very little but treating those at home with some contempt, Effie and the mother sided with him and put Tom into the shade. It irritated the youth that his elder brother should be made something of a hero by the women "'just because he didn't live at home and was a lace designer and almost a gentleman. "'But Alfred was something of a Prometheus bound, so the women loved him. "'Tom came later to understand his brother better. "'As youngest son, Tom felt some importance when the care of the farm devolved on to him. "'He was only eighteen, but he was quite capable of doing everything his father had done. "'And, of course, his mother remained as centre to the house.' The young man grew up very fresh and alert, with zest for every moment of life. He worked and rode, and drove to market. He went out with companions, and got tipsy occasionally, and played Skittles, and went to the little travelling theatres. Once when he was drunk at a public house, he went upstairs with a prostitute, who seduced him. He was then nineteen. The thing was something of a shock to him. In the close intimacy of the farm kitchen, THE WOMAN OCCUPIED THE SUPREME POSITION. THE MEN DEFERRED TO HER IN THE HOUSE, ON ALL HOUSEHOLD POINTS, ON ALL POINTS OF MORALITY AND BEHAVIOR. THE WOMAN WAS THE SYMBOL FOR THAT FURTHER LIFE WHICH COMPRISED RELIGION AND LOVE AND MORALITY. THE MEN PLACED IN HER HANDS THEIR OWN CONSCIENCE. THEY SAID TO HER, BE MY CONSCIENCE-KEEPER, BE THE ANGEL AT THE DOORWAY, guarding MY OUTGOING AND MY INCOMING. AND THE WOMAN FULFILLED HER TRUST. The men rested implicitly in her, receiving her praise or her blame with pleasure or with anger, rebelling and storming, but never for a moment really escaping in their own souls from her prerogative. They depended on her for their stability. Without her they would have felt like straws in the wind, to be blown hither and thither at random. She was the anchor and the security. She was the restraining hand of God, at times highly to be execrated. Now, when Tom Brangwen, at nineteen, a youth, fresh like a plant, rooted in his mother and his sister, found that he had lain with a prostitute woman in a common public-house, he was very much startled. For him, there was, until that time, only one kind of woman—his mother and sister. But now? He did not know what to feel. There was a slight wonder, a pang of anger, of disappointment— a first taste of ash and of cold fear lest this was all that would happen lest his relations with woman were going to be no more than this nothingness there was a slight sense of shame before the prostitute fear that she would despise him for his inefficiency there was a cold distaste for her and a fear of her there was a moment of paralyzed horror when he felt he might have taken a disease from her and upon all this startled tumult of emotion was laid the steadying hand of common sense which said it did not matter very much so long as he had no disease he soon recovered balance and really it did not matter so very much but it had shocked him and put a mistrust into his heart and emphasized his fear of what was within himself he was however in a few days going about again in his own careless happy-go-lucky fashion his blue eyes just as clear and honest as ever, his face just as fresh, his appetite just as keen. Or apparently so. He had, in fact, lost some of his buoyant confidence, and doubt hindered his outgoing. End of Chapter 1, Part 1